Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. Join us each month to hear ideas, inspiration and practical advice from people making change through music. These conversations are hosted by me, Anita Holford of Music Education Works and Writing Services. So I'll be focusing in particular on breaking down barriers to music through communication and advocacy, but from quite a broad perspective. I really hope you'll enjoy them. And now on with the show. Hello, it's Anita here and welcome to this month's podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Jimmy Rotherham. Jimmy is the Bradford music teacher who was thrust into the spotlight in 2017 when the media got hold of the story of how music contributed to transforming Feversham Primary. The school is in Bradford Moor, which is one of the most financially deprived areas of the UK. And in just a few years, it went from being in special measures to having an outstanding Ofsted rating and becoming one of the best primary schools in the country for pupil progress. And much of it was down to giving music a central role in the school. Spots on the BBC's One Show followed, a feature in The Guardian, along with lots of other radio, newspaper and online coverage, which no doubt you've seen, and also a nomination for the Global Teacher Prize. Jimmy's since run training for heads and teachers, given evidence to a House of Lords inquiry on music education and given talks to music educators all over the UK. So why I thought you'd be interested is that he's a great example of how one person with a mission and a story can get noticed and listened to and can really make a massive difference to music advocacy. So welcome and thanks for coming on, Jimmy. It's really great to have you here. Oh, pleasure to be here, Anita. Hi. Hi. Um, so before we go on to talking about what happened at the school and how you became a, a kind of music education superstar. Um, I'd be really interested to hear about your musical journey and how, how did you get to be a primary teacher and why is it what you do so important to you? Uh, well, music's been a part of my life ever since I was really tiny. My mum used to sing to me a lot, which, which really, really helps uh, with musical development. Um, and then as soon as I could reach a piano, I was playing on it. I was really lucky to have a piano in my house. Again, really lucky that my parents could just about afford for me to have piano lessons. So my mum would take me kind of four or five miles in wind, snow, rain, because we, I don't think we could afford the bus fare, but we could afford the piano oh. lessons. So it was brilliant having a mum like that who was really supportive. I was lucky enough to have a really good choir at school, which really helped with my musical development alongside that. And yeah, so music's just been a huge part of my life forever, really. And I, like most music teachers, I trained as a secondary music specialist. And it was only really when I started doing supply teaching that I realised what a sorry state music was in primary schools it was it was virtually non-existent in most of the schools I went to there's even a kind of anti-music tendency I, I, I once got asked never to come back to a school because I dared to bring my piano in and, and do a song for the last 10 minutes with the children and, and the school were furious with me and I think it's so strange yeah yeah it's, it's strange to us but it's it's quite common because there's such high stakes accountability for a very narrow curriculum of, of maths and English. Hopefully things are changing with that now, with Ofsted wanting to see a broad and balanced curriculum. But part of the problem is it's been absent from so many schools for such a long time. It's going to be take a while for schools to get music back on the agenda, really. It's going to be a really long, slow process, but hopefully things, things are definitely changing. I know you've told the transformation story of Feversham many times, um, but just for the record, can you kind of summarise what happened at Feversham that caused all the interest and how, you know, when you got there, what was it like and how did you start to begin to bring music more into the school? 
Sure, well we were in special measures, we were a, a failing school, um, the morale was very low in the school and like a lot of primary schools who are in that position, the head teacher thought, right, let, the previous head teacher thought, okay, let's focus on maths and English and nothing else. They were getting uh, maths consultants in. I went in there doing a little bit of music on supply and it, it was all not really done well because I was teaching just children in year five and six and only the children who are perceived to be musically talented and I went to the head teacher and and kind of said look if we're going to do music let's do it properly this is how we should be doing it um and he said brilliant yeah let's do it properly and I said well I'm going to need to get trained because I I'm a secondary teacher I don't know anything about teaching a class full of five-year-olds so the school paid me for me to have quite substantial training in in the Kadai approach um, and then I was looking to get a scholarship to study even more um, and that just gave me the tools and the methodology to to really make a difference with children in the school so we went from virtually no music to up to seven hours music a week for the children fairly quickly and we found that the more music we did the more children's confidence increased the more the happier they were uh, the more they enjoyed coming to school but then we started to see quite a dramatic upswing in results in other subjects and really nothing else had changed in the school it was still the same staff still the same senior management team it's just we had a new head teacher who wanted to put creativity right at the heart of the curriculum so it's brilliant to work alongside him and have the kind of sport he's given me to take a whole school approach to music and to put it at the centre of the curriculum. That's brilliant. And I know what everybody's going to want to ask is, first of all, so how did you persuade the kind of senior management team, uh, even the governors? It sounds as though you had an open door with the teacher. You were lucky with the head. Is that right? Yes, uh, lucky to an extent, but also I was very keen to present um, all the benefits of music education to him and I think one thing I wanted to kind of really put across in this podcast is that as music educators because it's so tough for us and because our music is so undervalued in schools we all need to be advocates now we all need to kind of fight our corner even if it's just with other staff in the school to educate them about the benefits and, and the best way of doing things and obviously with, with senior leaders and governors as well, you can really show um, how music can be part of a school improvement plan and how it can get so, so much better outcomes for children across the curriculum. I'm really interested to know how you did that. Did you sort of go to your head and explain the benefits and go to the, did you need to go to the governors to, to justify music? Not, not at that stage, no. I mean, it's something I used to do because at the time I was working as a, as a professional musician and just doing a couple of days supply during the week and I'd say the head teacher was kind of cautiously supportive of what I was doing but he did want to see evidence from research and things like that before we really took the plunge with things and oh, okay. there's so much evidence out there in all kinds of fields from neuroscience to psychology to um music and dyslexia there's so many uh, facets um, and so many benefits for the children that really it's it's hard to argue against and one thing I have found is that nobody's saying oh we should do less music in school we shouldn't we shouldn't do music nobody's saying that even Nick Gibb is saying I want all children to leave primary school able to read, read and write music well and to have a good balanced education but the system is just discouraging head teachers from doing that at the moment yeah absolutely and just 
just to sort of backtrack again in terms of that evidence base that your head teacher wanted to see what bits did you pick out or how did you go about presenting that evidence I, I presented quite a broad case for music education so there's the the well-being of benefits um research from people like the arts and minds charity which shows that pe people joining choirs um had a huge effect on improving their depression and, and loneliness and all these feelings that affect our well-being we looked at the neuroscience and how evidence suggests that music can promote structural and functional changes in the brain and especially in early years when when the brain's so plastic anyway we looked at the how music can boost literacy we looked at how we can teach music across the curriculum and use use the tools in music to teach maths and to teach other subjects i mean there's there's some quite substantial reports like uh, susan hallam's power of music is is particularly strong and that, that brings together a lot of this research into one piece of work so there's lots of good good reports out there to read and do you kind of, is your approach to sort of send those to your senior leadership team or do you talk them through the benefits or were you giving presentations? What sort of uh, tools did you use to get that, those messages across? It depends. I mean, sometimes I'd have teachers questioning why I'm doing things. So I'd just say, look, read all this research and I give them tons of research and I don't think they looked at it. But yeah, it was, exactly. yeah. here you go, read this. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And they just tend to agree with you then rather than have to read. <laughs> thousands of words but I think there's a perception still a perception in schools and it's become very ingrained over the years because music hasn't been seen as being important if you want to be a primary music specialist there's only two places in the country that do it that offer a PGCE uh, primary PGC with music specialism so there's hardly any um, opportunities to become a, a primary music specialist and it's seen as a often it's on a PPA cover basis so yeah. you're covering for teachers and you're seen as kind of, of not really part of the main body of staff often you'll get teachers pulling children out of your music lessons for things like handwriting interventions and dyslexia interventions and, and often it's those children that really need the music lessons the most and really see the biggest benefit from them so there's there's kind of an environment in schools where it's very very difficult at the moment for music teachers to succeed and people say oh can't we just train lots of people to do what you do uh, you can train lots of people to do what i do it really isn't rocket science however without the support of your head teacher it can be virtually impossible to, to actually achieve anything in a school so we're trying to develop a whole school model where all the staff are on board music central in the curriculum and and everybody respects it but it's 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 difficult even here with with all that support so if you have schools and the head teacher doesn't value music it must be very very difficult indeed for the music coordinators absolutely and in terms of allocating staff time as well as sort of money to music that's that's a massive thing isn't it and that's what's holding loads of schools back is there anything you can share about Feversham and how they overcame that to make sure that every child has music Sure. Well, music needn't be really expensive. It doesn't, there's so much of a focus on learning through instruments when actually, and especially in early years, the voice and the body are really powerful primal instruments that we can use. And we found with the sort of largely Pakistani Muslim community that we teach, there was lots of cultural and, and social issues with actually getting instruments out to children um, and for them to take them home, even though we we're offering free instrumental loans, children weren't really, children really wanted to take them home and 
and then the parents would say, no, no, we can't. Um, often because you've got big families, they were worried about instruments getting damaged and having to pay for them. Uh, or they were worried that it was going to stop their children from becoming a, a doctor or a lawyer because it was kind of, again, this perception that music is a waste of time rather than something which hugely enhances learning across all subjects so yeah there's there's a perception that music needs to be really expensive um, and what a lot of schools are doing is just buying in loads of instruments uh, without actually thinking well have we got anyone who can teach these instruments or the, the children are kind of getting instrumental lessons and it's a big group of 30 children and it's very very difficult to teach like that especially if you haven't had any training in age-appropriate pedagogy so yeah using the, the voice and the body we find that children could go and practice all the time we'll see things children going home practicing the sofa and practicing the rhythms on their bodies and things like that and actually the, the best investment you can make is in training for staff so that they can be independent and confident in delivering it and actually things like the first thing music project in Teesside have, have shown that whilst it's very difficult for teachers with no training to teach music actually if you just give them a bit of the fundamentals they were training teachers for about 25 hours in total and giving them a body of songs that they could use in lots of different ways and, and the first thing music found that was really effective and they've managed to bring the Kadai approach to 60 schools in Teesside but again a lot of those schools are finding the same problems you know people coming into their lessons and, and talking of the children while they're singing just not really giving the music the respect as a subject that it deserves so there's still some way to go but I think training for music coordinators and a whole school approach to music is really is the way forward oh that's really interesting and so i was going to go on to ask about what is it about the way music is done at feversham that has caused this remarkable transformation you your approach is very much based around the kadai approach can you tell me a little bit more about that yeah sure so the the kadai approach is um incredibly clever it's um children learn through play and quite often the games serve one of two purposes. Sometimes the game is just a way of reversing that dynamic where the teacher's saying to the children, no, you didn't get that right, let's do it again. And the kids go, no, do we have to do it again? Whereas if it's a game, it's the children saying, again, again, again. And you're saying to the kids, we've done this 70 times now, you're not bored, and they're not at all, they, they want to do it and do it. So you're establishing practice like that through, through the fun and play, but quite often there's um, important embodied cognition so children might learn about pitch through representing it physically they might learn about pulse through through gross motor movement and through moving to a pulse rather than putting up rhythms on a board and saying this is a semi-breathe this is a crotchet mm. um, it's a very instinctive way of, of learning music and and all of the steps are carefully scaffolded so that every child can come on that journey with you and I think as a way of teaching music on mass it's, it's incredibly effective and over the last few years I've, I've used more and more Dalcroze techniques and Dalcroze is is a wonderful approach too it's very much based on movement and expression and responding to music and use of time space and energy in the room then sort of relating that to how how we think about music if that makes sense so are those two approaches embodied in the training that primary school teachers would get? I know they only get probably two hours of training, oh, if that. No, oh, it's okay. a, most, most primary school teachers are getting training, which is an insult to them and an insult to the subject. It's, it's a joke. Um, they're getting between one and six hours training on the PGCE courses on the entire entirety of the course. 
So you imagine doing one hour, you've never played an instrument before, you get one hour of training. Um, I've looked at some of the stuff the NQTs, new, newly qualified teachers have been doing in my school for their music training. And it was things like listen to a piece of classical music and then comment on the dynamics, tempo, texture, etc. Um, and that's not giving them any guidance or, or tools to use in the classroom it's, it's not helping them in any way it's it's pointless and is there any sort of training available that you'd signpost schools to people often ask me how with so such an overwhelming array of, of options for how to teach music and, and a lot of commercial options how can you kind of find the right approaches when you might not really have a clear idea of what what good music teaching looks like and what I said to them is, is always ask two questions ask first of all what is your musical philosophy and what kind of pedagogy are you using and if they can't answer those questions goodbye really because uh, it shows that, that they're more bothered about just a, a box ticking commercial exercise than actually developing music thoroughly and rigorously the training I had was with the British Kadai Academy and that was absolutely marvellous superb training really really good and really in depth the I, I also went on a Dalcrow summer school so there's there's less Dalcrow's practice in my mashup of all these approaches but again the the Dalcrow's training that I had from Dalcrow's UK was just absolutely brilliant the British Kadai Academy Dalcrow's UK Voices Foundation are doing some excellent work in schools and and if you're an early years teacher then there's an organisation called Merrick who um, provide a lot of training and really the early years is so much different to year one and year one is so much different to year two that you, you kind of need different approaches and there's um, organizations like the Paul Hamlin Foundation Musical Futures Musical Futures approach which is quite radically different to Kadai and, and Dalcrows but again it's something that's been working in schools and, and has a good track record. So there's lots of different ways of approaching this, but I think that the priorities should be that it's child-centered, that it's age-appropriate, that it's fun, and that it plans for substantial musical development over time. Otherwise, you're just kind of randomly banging drums, randomly singing songs, and perhaps not learning all that much, and not developing all that much. I know that you're a big advocate for making sure music is as inclusive as possible and I, I know that that's actually more complex than it sounds so could you also tell me a little bit about how that works in your school? Sure the Kadai approach is a very inclusive approach because the idea is that um, the way music's often taught and, and certainly the way secondary school music teachers will teach it in a primary school is that you'll maybe present it in a, a couple of ways and using the score and things like that. I think if you present it in the sort of traditional ways we have presented music to children, there'll only be sort of five or six children who'll be able to do it straight away. And I think often we jump the gun a bit and think, oh, these are the musically talented children. And this idea of some children have musical talent and some children don't is just, I, I can disprove that. To anyone that comes to visit the school if, if, if it's taught in the right way every single child will be musical obviously they'll be musical to different extents depending on how how passionate they are and how much extra time they put in but every single child will have a strong foundation of, of musical ability and the reason that happens is because rather than just present things in one way and have five or six children understand it you'll present things in five or six different multi-sensory ways and eventually that starts to stick 
but you also have, um, I think traditionally a music teacher would kind of present you with a piece of music, you wouldn't recognise much of it, it'd be quite intimidating, and then your music teacher's job was to tell you all the mistakes you've made. A good pedagogy will prepare any difficulties, you'll break those down into exercises that you try before you do the song with these difficult parts in them. You'll anticipate what children are going to find difficult, you'll turn it into a game, you'll practice that and practice these elements and then when you do actually present them with, with the musical score they've been really prepared for it. They're approaching it with confidence rather than fear and they're making much fewer mistakes so when you get to the practicing stage children are much more successful because they've had a really good grounding and preparation. Uh, so the, the pedagogy itself is very inclusive. In early years we have a lot of children who are new to English so I tend not to speak very much. There's been a lot of um, pressure from the DFES for, for teachers to talk more in lessons and that might be fine for a kind of available history class but for an early years music class when none of the children speak English anyway there's very little point initially in using a lot of teacher talk so I will just go straight into the activities and the games and then children will develop their language through that. We also have so that's the kind of main body of the lessons and every child is doing really well with the curriculum but we also have interventions for dyslexic children so we've worked with Katie Overy and Emma Moore who are researchers into music and neuroscience and psychology at Edinburgh University and they observed that children with dyslexia often struggle with rhythmic activities and they looked at brain scans and noticed that our brains process music in virtually the same way that we process speech and language particularly with rhythms and the dyslexic children often struggle with certain rhythmic activities so things like rapid auditory processing if I clap seven fast claps they will really struggle to count that as, as seven. They will clap back five claps or, or eight claps. And they thought, well, if we can correct these, these rhythmical difficulties, will it have any positive effects on the literacy outcomes? And they found that it had quite significant effects. So we do that with children. They, the the dyslexic children in year two and year five will get three 20-minute sessions a week on top of all the music they're already getting. We also have quite intense interactive sessions with children with autism. We've, we've had maybe four or five who are selectively mute. And it's been wonderful just, just doing these sessions with them. We'll, we'll do a lot of activities to build up trust. We'll do a lot of observation and, and it's very child-led and we'll very much sort of go into their world. Once we've established that trust, we can start having exchanges of communication and, and working with this and, and maybe developing singing. And you can really see, kind of video these regularly, and you can really see the, the rapid development of speech and language in these children. And what's fascinating is they don't talk and they don't communicate much outside of the music room. And then the minute they come in, to music they're singing their hearts out top of their lungs and so it's had really significant effect on, on bringing the power of speech to these children and I, I don't think and the parents don't think that they would be speaking now if they hadn't have had those intensive interaction music sessions um, so yeah we're doing a, a lot in terms of inclusion and the fundamental principle of Kadai is that music is for everybody not a single child should be left out and as I said before if it's taught in the right way every single child in your class will be musical it's a myth that some people are musical and some people aren't yeah i'm really glad you said that um i know that awards for young musicians have done a series of videos about 
spotting not talent but spotting news call uh, potential i think they call it yeah and that's been really interesting i think hugh nankerville has been quite involved in that he's a community musician and very experienced um it's been really interesting seeing that that sort of develop and and that approach kind of expand across England and the UK. Yeah. It's so interesting hearing all this, Jimmy. There's so much to talk about about your school. I kind of want to move on to advocacy now. Very interested in the Katie Overy work, and I will be talking with her in a future podcast because you sort of suggested that, so that will be oh, great, great to hear more about that then. And I think actually that is a real, really good hook to hang music on, um, not that we should need to, but to, to tell your local authority school improvement teams about what music can do for dyslexia is, is quite a powerful message really and there are lots of different um, messages that we can <coughs> convey about different applications for music i just want to pick on before we move on to communications um, you're running training yourselves aren't you as a school anybody can come to is that right yeah yeah we did a, a couple of sessions last year um which went down really well and and teachers came away really confident about using aspects of Kadai and Dalcros in their work in the classroom. We do feel, however, that, as I said before, you, you really need a whole school approach. So what we're looking to do is, is bring our approach to all the schools in the AT Academy chain. And there's been a precedent for this with the work of Slam and Tyne in uh, the the David Ross Educational Trust Academies, they've got a Kadai approach going in all of their schools, which unfortunately isn't that well known, but I think that's that's quite an achievement. So we're looking to use um, sort of similar models across the AET schools, but also really give them a lot of support with, with the whole school approach. So you're not just training the teachers, but you're you're training the senior leaders, training the class teachers to really make music part of the school. Because I think one of the, the negative effects of setting up the music hubs has been that music then becomes something that the music services do and not the school yeah so schools kind of pass the book and say okay we've ticked that box the music service are doing it the kind of responsibility moves away from the school towards the music hubs and the music hubs are just not equipped to bring curriculum music to every single child in the country so yes yeah, it's, it's, it's really important for us that music's right at the heart of school life and so that training, anybody from anywhere around the UK can come up to Bradford and, and take part in that. And yes, just need yes. to look on your website for information. Yes, they can. Right? And they do, yeah. Plan visitors from as far away as the Cook Islands and New Zealand. And really? Canada. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it seems to be an international problem, this fading mm. away of music from curriculum. So I'm finding a lot of the arguments I'm using here also apply in Norway and North America and all over the world. It's a very similar story, unfortunately. Wow. So that seems an appropriate time to turn to communications because obviously you've been an amazing advocate for music education and it is just an example of how one person can make a difference. So how did all of that start? How did the media get hold of the story? I, I contacted the Guardian because I was reading um, the Tuesday Guardian Education Supplement and um, there's an article about how Bradford schools were underachieving. There was an article, I think, about how Muslim children weren't accessing music lessons and there was another article, I can't remember what that was now, but there's kind of three articles within the same edition which kind of, I thought, hang on, we're, t we're telling a completely different story to what you guys are telling here. 
so I got in touch with them. I think I tried before to uh, to get in touch with like the Bradford Telegraph and Argos, and they just weren't interested. But when I read all these stories again, I, I felt compelled to contact the Guardian, and I was and quite who... surprised when they said, "Yes, we'll send up one of our journalists to take a look." Oh. They, were, they were really interested in in a positive education story. As simple as that, then that's amazing. And who did you contact, and how did you? It was an email to the Guardian. It was just an email to the Guardian. Team. Yeah, to the Guardian Education team, yeah. And I really encourage, you hear about so many music teachers who are quietly getting on with doing absolutely brilliant work, which the children are really benefiting from and the school's really benefiting from, but we need to be shouting from the rooftops when when we're doing this kind of work because so many children are not getting this and that's what drives me. When I see autistic children learn to speak, dyslexic children improve the spelling, every single child being a confident, expressive musician and, and all the kind of benefits that this brings, I think it's criminal that children aren't getting this in schools. That's my main motivation, that's why I spend my days teaching but I also spend my evenings doing all this advocacy work and, and just trying to get the message out there about the importance of music and how we as music teachers can really sell what we do to parents and governors and head teachers and the Department of Education and, and Ofsted. You're only a kind of few steps away, I think, from very influential people. And I think if you can keep putting the, the right messages out, they will get picked up and people will pick up on the work that you're doing. And I want to ask a really tactical question now. When you wrote that email to The Guardian, what were the things that you said? Because you only have very few paragraphs or words to grab somebody's attention because they get so many press releases and things like that. So what was it you said specifically about your school? Can you remember? Just that we were booking all the, all the trends in education. So, so everything that they'd highlighted, we could show the opposite of that. You can have Muslim children engaged in music. You can have a Muslim community engaged in music. You can have children, all the children being musical. You know, it was just a, a, a very positive, we can do this and we are doing it. And I was very surprised at how popular the article they did was. Um, it got 250,000 shares around the world. And, wow. and that's when the kind of international interest in the school started. And then the BBC World Service picked up on that and did a film which has now had about 10 million views across the world and it was that sort of thing which attracted the the Global Teacher Prize and it just kind of snowballed from there really and uh, I'm still kind of rolling around in that snowball and And what did you specifically do to grab onto the coattails as it was all spinning around Uh, just taking one one step at a time really um and just just moving from one thing to the next and i found that if i stopped to think about what i was doing it would be a little bit terrifying because i was (laughs) you know speaking to the house of lords i've had opportunities to influence the department for education and and ofsted doing things like keynote talks for the royal philharmonic society and the, the music education commission and i just kind of have to try and be very zen about it and just go from one thing to the next not panic not worry too much uh, not think about whether I'm out of my depth or not and just going for it really and doing the best I can because I've got some very exciting opportunities to influence policymakers. if everything is still the way it is in terms of politics I will be doing a talk to both Nick Gibb and Amanda Spielman in December um, and that's really exciting because I can really put, the, put these arguments forward. It's great to have that kind of influence, but it's also a big responsibility and it, it's something that 
that might never happen again and that might disappear tomorrow for all I know. So it's just a, a case of taking my chances and, and making the most of the opportunities. But I've got great support. And, and what you'll find is if you do go into something like primary music advocacy, there's not millions of people who are shouting and fighting for this. There's kind of a small team of people, if you like, who are regularly putting forward these arguments and you can just become part of the team with them you know it's quite an inclusive movement and it's a lot of people working very very hard to try and make a difference that's really inspiring that anybody could do that and you have to be just brave and don't almost don't think about the the fear and i think actually not being part of an organization can be quite advantageous in many ways you know not not being part of a kind of major national organization because you're not seen as having any bias or any vested interests you won't be kind of have to pass things on to the ceo or the your line manager or and you've got complete editorial freedom to put your views across yeah i can understand that actually there's one national organization that's asking for people who are willing to be spokespeople which is the creative industries federation and they are yeah. spokespeople so i'm trying to get as many music education people to get on that list as possible so sometimes that does happen too that the national organizations <laughs> will be looking for individuals to speak so how did all this attention affect the school and and the pupils and also yourself i think it's been overwhelmingly positive i mean my my first priority was to protect music in this school and to kind of make it so, such a strong feature of the school that they couldn't ever get rid of it. It's very much cemented music as, as a central part of the school. Um, it's been a lot of good news for the community. The, the community and, and the school in particular gets a very bad press and or previously it had got very bad press and even a couple of years ago you'd walk around the community and, and you'd say oh, I work at Feversham School and they'd say oh that's a terrible school isn't it that's an awful school and you'd say, oh, no we're, we're outstanding according to Ofsted it's, it's very very difficult to improve your reputation locally if it's been damaged and bad for a long time and you know if, if if parents went to the school and, and had bad experiences, it's very easy to get into a, a negative cycle. So it's it's all the more miraculous, really, that we've been able to pull out of that um, and put a positive story across. It's incredible. And what are your future plans for spreading the message about music education? Well, this year is, um, again, part of the reason I'm working really hard. It's, it's kind of like my Olympic year. Um, I don't think... I'm going to get these opportunities again to influence things and, and there's a lot of key things coming out this year so we've we've already had the new Ofsted framework the subject deep dives and I've been hearing about quite a few, few of those mm. taking place for music um, so that that'll make a huge difference if Ofsted are taking music seriously and actually inspecting it I've been working in schools for about 16 years now and because I was doing a lot of, co- of supply contracts I would get Ofsteded all the time so I might have sort of three Ofsteds in one term if I'm working in three different schools but they never ever ever came to see music so Mm. after a while I stopped worrying about it and (laughs) that they weren't bothered and I think schools have have let music slide because Ofsted haven't taken the slightest bit of interest in it Uh, so it's good for Ofsted to suddenly start taking an interest and as I say this this year we've had the new 
inspection framework from them. We've also got the new national plan for music education and that could make or break things really. So that's that's a vitally important um, piece of work. We've got the new model music curriculum, which I've been advising on. And I can't say too much about that, but I can say what I've seen so far is absolutely brilliant. I know there's been a lot of sort of criticism. Oh, that's good to hear, something positive. Yeah, there's been a lot of criticism of the makeup yeah. of the panel, but I think there's been enough people on there with real expertise and, and a really good philosophy of primary education for us to, to put something together, which I, I actually think people are going to be quite surprised by and, and they're really going to like. Oh. So hopefully that can provide a good standard for schools to aspire to. Yeah, so, so this year is, is just vital. There's so much happening, so much coming out this year. Next year, I've not really thought of too much. I might just try and chill out on a beach for a year somewhere. <laughs> Don't blame you. Lifeguard or something. <laughs> yeah. And just, just try and relax for a bit. But yeah, it's, oh, um, it's I, can maybe take, I can maybe take my foot off the gas a little bit next year. And I'm certainly not working in a sustainable way at the moment. I'm doing 60, 70 hour weeks, which you can do for a short time, I think. So I'm seeing this year as, as a year where I'm, I'm kind of really going to hammer things home and see how the dust settles next year i hope you look after your well-being jimmy because we i think we kind of need you <laughs> yeah so, um, i think i want to move on to questions from twitter and linkedin so there's just a couple sure. of questions that's okay so liv mclennan who's a community musician i think you know liv she said was jimmy already working at the school or started working there after it went into special measures and just wondering about the slt's thinking around music why did they choose music and how do they go about implementing it so deeply probably covered some of that yeah yeah i mean we were just i think we were just coming out of or had just come out of special measures when i started at the school but really it's a lot of credits due to the head teacher because the head teacher has got a real kind of deep philosophy on on school and, and education really believes that the arts even though he's not from an artistic or musical background himself he is from a, a Sufi Muslim background so he appreciates that that spiritual side of music and obviously we've, we've, we live in quite a secular world now um, music's kind for him is one of the last connections to that spiritual that, that transcendental experience which for him brings you closer to God and develops the soul and they often talk about children in terms of developing their souls part of this kind of developing the whole child approach so in all subjects we are looking to develop all aspects of children you know the, the confidence the self-esteem the physical development all of this is is planned for in a, in a very joined up curriculum so we're not just having this narrow focus on English and maths because regardless of, of what your results say I think everybody knows that's not a good education for these children and actually if we're, if we're sending children away from school without the confidence to speak to people with low self-esteem issues that's every bit as much of a failure for me as if we send children away from school not being able to read and write I have what we call a values-based curriculum so we have um, we'll have a kind of different theme each month we'll teach about resilience or we'll teach about um, patience or friendship or all of these sort of things which again are not really measured are they and they're not really measured by schools they're not necessarily seen as fundamentally important to schools because we've got such a pathological narrow focus on maths and English and, and that's 
we're not really preparing them for the world of work either if we don't provide them with a broad and balanced education. And so the other question was from Karen Turner, who um, is, she's the Executive Director of the National Youth Theatre of Great Britain. And she said, did you use music alongside other art? Um, yes, actually, art in our school is something that, that we're still looking to improve. Drama has, has always been central to what we do as well. So we have a fantastic drama teacher who doesn't get that much publicity but he's superb he must have retired about five years ago and we wouldn't let him because he was so brilliant <laughs> so he just comes in a couple of days a week now um, and we've just taken on a new drama teacher dance is a huge part of what we do we're very lucky to have a couple of members of staff with dance degrees so all the kind of work I do with with movement and doll crows really fits in well with with what they're doing in, in dancing and it sounds like your school employs subject specialists um, yes very definitely in the arts yeah um, I think we've, we've had we've shown models where you can um, not be a subject specialist and actually teach music outstandingly well in early years in key stage one uh, because you don't need to be a virtuosic musician to to deliver music at that level what you do need is sort of things we we're talking about earlier the age-appropriate pedagogy the good relationships with the children the positive attitude etc um, and actually I think a, a trained up classroom generalist in key stage one will be will be more effective than someone who's just a musician and who hasn't had that sort of training in, in how to make it stick with the children. The difficulty comes in key stage two, where uh, if you have had a really good music program in key stage one and, and early years, by the time children get to key stage two, they're often at a higher level than the teachers. Mm. Um, therefore, it, it can add an extra layer of difficulty and embarrassment to the teachers. So having, I think all, all, all schools need access to a specialist. They're not going to be able to all employ a specialist. But what I would hope is that music hubs could provide music specialists which would work in clusters with school so that, that special knowledge specialist knowledge and skills is still disseminating into the, the schools it's just in, in, in much more of an organized way much more of a collaborative way with the class teachers rather than being something that's entirely separate yeah and I know that a lot of hubs are doing that particularly around um, singing so that's really positive and um, that's been in in this sort of national plan from the start and it sounds to me as though that that sort of Kadai training actually because it's so pedagogy based and very mm. values based in a sense that actually yeah. sending a teacher on that training would benefit all of their teaching wouldn't it so it, it doesn't need to necessarily be seen as just music training almost absolutely yeah i mean it's it's just very good inclusive pedagogy there's there's certain things that you can take across into other subjects so um something that's really important in the kadai approach and also in things like the off approach Karloff said you should experience first and then intellectualize. Kadai had kind of three-step pedagogy where you had a preparation stage, which was this experiential unconscious learning. And then you would present the information of what the children were learning, and then you would practice it. That's an, a model, quite a simple model, but that can be applied to other subjects. So finally, Jimmy, I could talk to you for absolute hours, but we'll have to wrap up quite soon. So could you give us three or more practical piece of advice for others working in music education who maybe feel they don't have a voice, who maybe want to advocate for music in their own school or perhaps want to raise the profile of music education more generally and campaign for change? Yeah, I mean, my there's the kind of mud, mud against the wall theory, isn't there, where you kind of throw lots of mud against the wall and eventually some of it will stick to the wall. That's been no different.
different for me, really. I mean, I, I mean, obviously I've had all this interest in my work over the last couple of years, but I've been teaching for 16 years now, and, and often I was that voice who no one was listening to. So I've been there, and I can sympathise with that, but I think just, just keep putting your arguments across, keep fighting your corner, because we have to now, uh, just to protect music. Uh, as I said, everyone needs to be an advocate now. We need to protect our own jobs in our own schools by making sure that the staff in the schools really understand what we're doing and why, and, and the parents, and, and, and all of these benefits that we spoke about. You know, I, I will advocate to anybody, you know, who's nearby, you know, people who are, whose eyes are glazing over at bus stops <laughs> who have no interest in, in what I'm talking about. But I'm, I'm kind of so enthusiastic about it. And, and what has been amazing is that, that people are listening and only have to get your arguments taken on board by a few key influencers. And the great thing about being online is you have access to all these key influences. You know, you can you can go to a speech about something at a music conference and then you can contact the guy or the woman that was doing the talk the next day and chat to them about what they were doing and strengthen your own arguments and get involved by just putting yourself about really and keep shouting it from the rooftops. So sort of talk to anyone you never know when you're going to plant a seed. Yeah. Be networked yes. because that's critical and there's sort of plenty of opportunities to be networked in all sorts of different ways. Loads of people will help as well because, I mean, I've you spoke about how I'm kind of doing this on my own, but I don't feel like I am doing it on my own and I don't feel like I would even be able to do it on my own. I've, I've had incredible sort of behind-the-scenes support, so... I can. I might be doing a talk on what music and well-being, so I'll get in touch with music therapists, and I'll get in touch with people who have much greater expertise than I do. Being able to have a network like that, where you've got all these expertise and all these people making strong arguments and and influencing the world, you can just dive in and be part of that. The kind of social networking that's going on might be the thing that saves music education. Oh, that's really interesting. That's brilliant. Yeah. It's just worth, worth diving in and getting involved in the conversations because particularly on Twitter, I think there's some really rich conversations that go on and, and people are all learning an awful lot about yeah. how to make the case. Uh, one thing that's really important about being an advocate is to kind of get into the world of, of people who you're putting these arguments to. So when I had the opportunity to influence the Department for Education, I looked at all their philosophies. So they, they believe in, in knowledge-rich education. They believe in the ideas of E.D. Hirsch. Um, and actually what you'll find is they're not completely incompatible. You, you'll find things you can hook onto. So if I'm talking to the DFES, I'll talk about knowledge-rich aspects of my work. If I'm talking to Montessori teachers, I'll talk about the child-led aspects of my work. If I'm talking to head teachers, I'll be talking about the, the possible boost to academic um, achievement. If I'm talking to nurses and music therapists, I might talk about the well-being elements. And I think it's, it's important to be able to know where your audience is coming from um, and to be able to pitch your arguments specifically to those those targets angle your messages accordingly and there's a tool that people use called an empathy map actually in communications yeah. which is exactly what you're talking about that's a really really fantastically useful tip to end on thank you so much for all the inspiration and the ideas you've given us and thanks for all you're doing for music education thank um, you Nita. you're really welcome if you want to read more about jimmy i'll be sharing lots of information and links in the show notes thank you very much for listening
That's the end of our show this time. Thank you for listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast and make sure to subscribe so that you get to hear about future episodes. If you'd like to be on the podcast or you'd like to know more about me and how I help music and creative organisations through communications, then visit writing-services.co.uk and get in touch. Thanks for listening and have a great week.